0: Well, thank you, choir and orchestra, isn't it great? Every week we get to enjoy this great music like that. And uh, don't take that for granted. Um, and that song Chris sung, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Somebody asked a great theologian one day, he said, uh, can you give me your theology in just a sentence? And he said, yes, I can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's about all you need to know to know the Lord, isn't it? And uh, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for the music. I was thinking when Chris was singing that song a cappella there, it reminded me a lot of hearing my own self in the shower sometimes singing. (laughs) You believe that? I have this piece of land down in the swamp. that I. Okay, the Bible today and the book of Philippians chapter 1, if you will. Philippians chapter 1. Now, you've already said it, haven't you? But let's say it again. Everybody together as soon as you find it. And we'll just get in one little extra round of our practice here in just one verse this morning. And the subject is the subject of the monthly verse. Understanding our... Salvation, that's my subject, understanding our salvation. All right, let's say our verse, Philippians chapter 1. Everybody good and heartily and everyone participating together. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians (laughs) Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 But I was glad to see Jim do that It makes I talk more than anybody here So I mess up more than anybody And it just gives me a great blessing When I see somebody else mess up And I know exactly how they feel Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 Don't let us confuse you Okay, now, seriously What could be more important today than understanding your salvation. What could be more important than your salvation? When I broach that subject, don't turn me off. Don't assume you know what I'm going to say. You will know part of it. Some of it I hope you don't because I want it to be fresh. But I'll tell you one thing. From the moment you were born, God implanted in you a soul. The Bible does not say that you are a human being with a soul. That's wrong. That's poor theology. In the book of Genesis, it says, God created man, breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I am not a person with a soul. The Bible elevates it even more highly. I am a soul. You are a soul. That's the primary part of your being. You are a soul with a body. So now that we have the emphasis stated correctly, what could be more important than that soul? Because 10,000 years from now, you will be alive somewhere. That soul is endless, dateless, timeless, eternal. It will live forever and ever. And your position in all of eternity, whether it be heaven or hell, will be determined by what you do in this life. There are no second chances. You don't go around twice. You don't get to live this life any way that you want and then decide And I'll tell you, it's a highly risky business to live this life any way you want, thinking that you'll get a chance at the end. You may, but you may not. And so it is imperative, critical, vital. I can't tell you how important it is that you deal with the issue of your soul right now, today, when God speaks to you. Now, the Bible teaches that there are two sides to salvation, there's God's part, and there is man's part. God's part, God's side of the equation, if I could say it like that, is that first of all, back in eternity, before God ever created a human being, God looked down through the tunnel of time, and God saw you, God saw me, we got, God saw everyone because God knows everything. And the first thing I know because of his very nature that he is love, the Scripture says, then if God is love, he loved us. He loved us without condition. God looked down through time. God saw us, and God loved every one of us. Because he loved us, he knew that in the future when he created man, that man would rebel against him. And so God initiated a plan whereby he could redeem man to himself and that all of humanity would not perish. So God initiated this plan. The plan involved his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, voluntarily and willingly being being willing to come to the earth and go to the cross and die for our sins. So God had a part. The Lord Jesus had his part to come to the earth and go to the cross and resurrect, to conquer death. The Holy Spirit had a part because it is the Holy Spirit who imparts spiritual life to you and me. He is the agent of what we call the new birth. He is the one who creates in the soul of man and woman when they receive Christ. He is the one who creates that eternal life, that eternal being, if you will. And so that's God's part. Now, man's part, the human side of salvation, is simply to believe, to put our faith, our trust, our confidence, our dependence upon what God has done for us and the gospel itself, to believe the gospel and to repent of our sins and receive Christ. That is man's part, God's part, man's part. Now, here, I hope you're listening. You appear to be, so stay with me. Here's the thing. When I listen to people give their testimony or talk about their salvation, sometimes I'm concerned because, very frankly, it sounds like that their salvation depends upon them. Even good people, even good Baptist people, even good every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night people, sometimes when I listen to them talk about their salvation, it appears that all they're talking about is themselves. And there's not much emphasis upon God's part and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I will hear them say something like this. Well, one day I heard the gospel and I believed it. Or one day I decided to turn my life around and to come to Christ. Or I remember I prayed that prayer and I received Christ as my Savior, or I repented of my sins, or I decided I was going to believe in Jesus one day, and these people, I listen to them. What is the one word that you hear repeatedly in that? It's that perpendicular pronoun, isn't it? I, 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 I. I believed, I repented, I received, I did. I. It's all about us, and there's no mention, whatever, of God's part. And I'll tell you, without God's part, all of your effort will be absolutely zero, won't it? And so today, I, I, or we, this month, we chose this as our verse of the month to memorize. And I want you to get a hold of it. I want you to get a hold of it deeply. Being confident. We have confidence. Being confident of this one thing above all other things, the big thing in all of life. Being confident of this one thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The word I is not even in there. It's all about about the Lord's part. He is the one who provides, who initiates, who provides, who sustains our salvation, and all we are is like a beggar reaching out our empty hands to receive what he has so graciously provided for us. There's a verse in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, and you might want to note it. And the verse goes like this. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Doesn't even mention our part because salvation is so completely about the Lord. Some witty old saint sometime in the past described his or her salvation like this. It's an unknown author. But read that with me and think about it. God thought it. Jesus bought it. The devil taught it. My soul sought it. My mind caught it. Grace brought it. The Spirit wrought it. The devil fought it. Praise God, I got it. Amen? What a powerful, powerful testimony. It's all about what the Lord did. Look at it. All I can say is I got it. God thought about this and initiated it. Jesus bought it with his precious blood on the cross. It's the theme of the Bible. The Bible taught it. My soul got hungry when I heard the gospel and sought it. My mind understood it and caught it. Grace then reached down and brought it. The spirit rotted. He's the one who did the work. The devil fought it. And praise God, by his grace, I've got it. And I'll tell you what, that's a great theological statement in just one little old uh, encapsulation there. From start to finish and from first to last, I want you to know that your salvation is the work of God on your behalf. Now, I know that on a Sunday morning in May, and not a special emphasis, that uh, most of the people in my congregation right now, at least here, are going to be Christians, professing Christians. And you're going to say, well, Pastor, you should have preached this on Easter or Friend Day when we have hundreds of guests. But no, I want you, Christians, church members, I want you to deeply understand your salvation. So I've broken our text down. Our verse of the month, I've broken it down into two parts. Number one, the origin of our salvation. He that begun a good work in you. Who originated our salvation? And then a second point that I want to give to you is the outcome of our salvation. The origin and the outcome. Two O's this morning. And number one, let's think about the origin of salvation. He that begun a good work in you. The origin of it is he, it's God. See, people have the idea that, well, I've decided I was going to get saved. I'm going to, I decided I was going to be a Christian. No, let me tell you, long time before you decided, the Lord was at work on your salvation. In fact, the Bible said he is the one who put within your heart and mind the interest that you even have for salvation. Now, he doesn't coerce you. He doesn't make you. You have a will. But the, Jesus said, you can't even come to the Lord except God draw you. And so he is the one who puts that interest, that desire, that idea in your heart. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another wonderful verse that teaches this in a, in a different way. It's the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And it's the second verse. And I want you to look at the screen or look at your Bible. This is a powerful, powerful verse. It says we're to look to Jesus. Now, notice what it calls him, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, who is the author? So we have a book. We pick up a book and we say, who is the author of the book? Well, the author of the book is the person who had the ideas, who sat and wrote on a computer, or with their hand, or however. Perhaps they dictated it, but it was their ideas. It was their heart, their mind, their spirit that was flowing out of that book. The author of the book is the initiator, the creator, the writer, the one who did the work. Jesus is called the author of our faith. Just think about that. And then he's not only called the author who begins the work, but he is the finisher of the work. He is the one who has to sustain us. If I depended upon my efforts for salvation, I couldn't stay saved one day, ladies and gentlemen. But if I'm depending on him, he knows how to finish it, doesn't he? And so Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. The whole process is in his hands. If you understand that about your salvation, it'll take on far more value to you. Now, in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, we have the account of man's fall. You don't need to turn there particularly with me this morning. But you have the story of Adam and Eve. And God created them, and he put them in the garden. And you know, he only gave them one commandment. You and I have many commandments, but they only had one commandment, one and one only. And what was the commandment? Their commandment was, don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of the fruit of just this one tree that I've planted in the center of the garden. And no prohibitions on anything else. That was it, one commandment. And yet, man being by nature what he is, They chose to rebel against God. It's like that child. And we tell the child, look, you can do anything. You can play anywhere, but don't play in the street. Well, then where do you go look for them? They're going to do the one thing. They're going to test you. And that's what the first children of God did. Adam and Eve, they tested God. And they disobeyed him. They went to the tree and they ate of the fruit of that tree. They rebelled against that one simple command that they had. But listen to me. Now, I want you to get this. This is implied and woven into the text, but it doesn't say it specifically like this, but I want you to get a hold of it. The moment that they took the bite of that, first, of that fruit, their conscience was awakened. They knew they had done wrong. That conscience was latent. It was dormant. It was not active. It was passive. But the moment that they sinned, sin brought that conscience alive from a passive attitude to a very, very active state. And immediately, they were smitten with guilt. They understood that what they had done had displeased the Lord. And what does the Bible say? God came down to walk with them in the garden, and they hid themselves. Why did they hide themselves? Because that conscience red light was just blinking like that. And The Bible then says they took leaves from a fig tree to cover their nakedness, to clothe themselves, an effort on their part to cover up their guilt, if you will. And it didn't work. It didn't work. They tried to take care of their guilt and their forgiveness with their own ideas, and it didn't work. And ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't work today. And people try to do that with all kinds of ways in our modern age. They join a church. They reform their life. They get religion. They try to cut out their bad habits and start doing good things. And it's the work of their hands. It's the fig leaf story over and over and over repeated. What did the Lord do? He took the initiative. He took the initiative. It wasn't Adam and Eve who took the initiative. It was God who took the initiative. He came down to the garden, and he slew an animal. He took the life of an animal, an innocent sacrifice. Blood was shed, as it always had to be, the forfeiting of an innocent life for the guilty in God's way of, of doing things. And God then took the skins of those animals, and he clothed Adam and Eve. He gave them a suitable covering, a God-approved plan, if you will. And the very fact that they put that on was evidence of the fact that they were, in fact, now taking God's way of salvation. They attempted to cover themselves with their own efforts, but it failed. God provided a substitute and God is the one who initiated a plan for their salvation. Their efforts were unacceptable. It was God who took the initiative. I use that word again. Now, it's important for us to understand that and apply it to our life. Where are you in your life with the Lord? Where are you in your salvation experience? Can you honestly Judgment day, honest, stand in front of the mirror and look at it at home in your privacy. Shut the bathroom door and look in the mirror and say, Be, I am confident of this very thing. That the one who started the work in me will perform it and will complete it. That Jesus Christ is the author, the beginner, the creator of my salvation, and he is the one who will finish my salvation, and I'm dependent on exclusively upon him. That's what this passage is talking about. It's, see, we are, we are so dip, independent of God, and we don't realize that we are. We don't mean to be. It's just it's the way we think. It's important to understand our hopeless condition and our helpless condition. We, we can't fix the problem that we have on the inside. Man cannot fix his own problems. And so we have to come with a certain humility. We live in this time of entitlement. Everybody believes they're entitled to certain things. I'm going to tell you something. It's blunt and it's cutting edge and you do with it whatever you want. But I'll tell you one thing. You're not entitled to anything from Almighty God. Neither am I. We have no claim upon God's grace. If we could claim it, it wouldn't be grace by definition. Grace is something God gives to people who don't deserve it. And the moment you get to where you think you're entitled or you deserve it, right then you have forfeited the very basis of your salvation, my friend. No, you have to be humble. You have to say, I'm exactly what the Scripture says I am. And it doesn't matter, the voices from the culture. It doesn't matter about those. What does God say in his word, in his revelation? And here's what God says about an unsaved person. And maybe you've been saved for 40 years, but you must never forget this because in this area, we can never move away from this. The idea that we approach God with humility, we deserve nothing. The Bible says we are dead, Ephesians 2, 1 You're dead in trespasses and sins. A dead man can't save himself. A dead man can't do anything to acquire righteousness. We're dead in trespasses and sins. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says we're blind. The God of this world hath blinded the minds, the minds, the thinking processes The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Think of that. If you're here today, or if you're watching on television, and you think you can figure this out, the Scripture says your mind has been blinded by the God of this world, Satan himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says that we're ignorant. The natural man, the unsaved man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit. And in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, it says we're all lost without Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've all gone out of the way. We're all unprofitable, Romans says. Now today, you say, man, I went to that church down there. And old leather lungs down there. He insulted every one of us. I don't know if I'll ever go back to that kind of church again or not. Before the, I got the pew warm, he told me I was dead, blind, ignorant, and lost. No, I didn't tell you that. I'm telling you what the Bible says about that, ladies and gentlemen. But is that not what it says? You can look those verses up yourself. And until we get somebody really, really, really lost, it's kind of hard to get them saved. You know, I don't go to the medicine cabinet and take aspirin just because I think it'd be a good thing today. But when I get a headache, I know where to go. I take the medicine when I sense the need. And we're living in a world where we have, we have put so much emphasis on people's self-esteem and all this emphasis upon, you know, everybody now is a champion. Everybody's a winner. Give a trophy to everybody on the team, whether they deserved it or not. And we've come to such a strait in our culture today that nobody has any need anymore. Go back and review those verses. Dead, blind, ignorant, lost. Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. And over and over and over, we read that dire account of the condition of humanity without Jesus Christ. So, if we are blind, ignorant, dead, and all the things that the Bible says, we can't save ourselves. So I go to the book of Luke, chapter 15. It's the book about the Lord giving three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the silver rolled under the furniture and was lost, the lost boy, the prodigal son. The first parable there is about the lost sheep. So he pictures a shepherd, an oriental shepherd, an ancient shepherd. He has 100 sheep. It's evening time. He counts the sheep. He goes to the sheepfold and he counts them. And he counts 99. Are you sure? One is missing. So he recounts them. That's right, 99. I've got a lost sheep. And he leaves the 99. He leaves the people that are in the church. He leaves the ones that are safe, and he goes out there in the wilderness, the Bible says, and he searches and searches and searches till he finds that one lost sheep. The lostness of that one person is more important to him than the 99 that are safe. And so he temporarily forsakes them, if you will, and he goes to take care of that one sheep, and he searches and searches and seeks and goes up and down those hills and rocks and through those briar patches and bramble bushes in the darkness of the night because there's one sheep missing. And he hears that little bleeding of that one little sheep somewhere off in the distance. And he goes and he searches until he finds that sheep. And Jesus said, that's a picture of the Lord. He took the initiative that it's important to him that every single person be found and nobody be lost. And he left the glory of heaven, and he came to this earth. And there's a search theology throughout the whole Bible. God is always looking. He is always searching. God's heart is for those not primarily that are sitting here this morning There's that world out there with 7 billion people in it. Those lost sheep are out there. And it's so easy for us to get apathetic and complacent and comfortable. Big church, beautiful music. Got our preacher who preaches us a sermon every Sunday morning. And we have everything, all the comforts of life. And forget all those lost sheep out there. If God didn't take the initiative, who would? And you can apply that personally because he took the initiative for me. And he took that initiative, in your case, for you. And he searched. And he took the initiative. That sheep couldn't do anything. That sheep was blind and ignorant and lost. And it was God's grace that that shepherd went to search for that sheep. Sunday night after church, I'm usually sort of keyed up, and I'm tired and keyed up too. So sometimes I stay up late. Last Sunday night, I turned on the television set, and I was just surfing across the channels, and then I came to the one of the Christian channels, and there was Billy Graham. It was Billy Graham a long time ago. He wasn't a, the old man you see today. He was a real old. I would say it was his 70s because his tie was about that wide. Big flowers on it, and I thought he didn't get that yesterday. And, uh, you know, his suit and his glasses and his hair, everything, he looked different. But it was him, and he was preaching. And he was preaching on being born again. And I knew it was back in the 70s because he said, you know, this phrase came out just recently because Charles Colson wrote this book on being born again. Well, that's early 70s. Charles Colson wrote about being born again, how he met Christ in the prison. And how Christ changed his life. And then a few years after that, late 70s, along comes Jimmy Carter. And he claims to be born again. He's a Sunday school teacher in a little Baptist church down in Georgia. And uh, Jimmy Carter claims to be born again. And other than people like you and me who went to churches that were sound Bible-centered churches... Most of the population in the country never heard of the term born again. It was new to them in those days. And Billy Graham said, and this was even back then, he said that that's beginning to be misused. The term is being misapplied. I'm afraid people don't understand it. So he's preaching, he's explaining what it means to be born again. And he gave an illustration where somebody, their career had been in the tank and then suddenly Their career comes back to life, and they say, my career has been born again. I'm thinking of the city of Florence right now. I think I read or heard this locally, that our downtown area has been born again. We poured all that money in and built all those new buildings downtown in the center of Florence here. And so downtown has been born again. Let me tell you, that is not, I say it again, K-N-O-T, not what the Bible means here when it says that. And I could tell some of y'all are asleep. You didn't get that. (laughs) Or worse yet, I hope it doesn't mean you don't know the difference in N-O-T and K. (laughs) So at any rate, but when Jesus said you must be born again, he wasn't talking about a rejuvenation of what we already are. He wasn't talking about new carpet and paint and roof. He wasn't talking about a rehab job. Do you know what the term born again means in the Bible? It means born from above. Born from above. Jesus said to John or to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews. You must be born again. It means to be born from above or to regenerate, if you will, to regenerate something. Take the R off of that up there, the R-E rather, the, the, the preface of the word there. And you have generate. I'm thinking of the ice storms here we had a few months ago, and everybody went running to the hardware store somewhere to try to buy them a, a generator because all the appliances on the inside were dead, weren't they? There was no life in them. Your refrigerator was silent. Your air conditioner wouldn't work nothing in the house worked. It was an electrical appliance. You couldn't watch your television, no electricity. And we went out and we bought a generator and we powered it up and hooked it to the electrical system. An outside force produced power and energy and those appliances came back to life. And here we are, dead in trespasses and sin, blinded by the God of this world, lost without help or hope. And God in heaven regenerates us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have life. He took the initiative. It's not what I did. It's what he did for me, being confident of this thing. He that hath begun the good work in you, Turn in your Bible, please, Titus chapter three. The book of Titus, chapter three. And Titus is a there's a verse here that so clearly explains this point that I'm laboring to just drive this nail deeply into your heart. You'll never forget it. In Titus chapter three, and let's begin reading back about verse four. Well, let's go back to three because it it even talks about our condition before we're saved. Titus chapter three, verse three, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. See, this Bible just keeps on telling us our bad condition before Christ. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We served various lusts and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then, but... After that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. There's that big word. By that washing of regeneration, he, an outside being and force, acted upon us from heaven. And he did a work in my life in which produced eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what the good work referred to here means. Now, second and last thing. I won't be as long on the second one. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, and he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will perform it. So the outcome. Now, think about that verse again with me. Being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will perform it. You see that in your Bible? Mark that, make sure you retain it. He will perform it, not I. Now listen to me, look up here, don't miss this. It is not my performance that's at stake in my salvation. It's his performance on my behalf that's at stake when it comes to my soul's salvation. It is his performance. I say it again. I'm depending on him to perform for me, not me to perform and gain his acceptance. And I meet so many sad souls. They're always trying to please God by doing something to earn his favor. They're performance-oriented Christians, and they're always miserable people. My salvation is not contingent. Or dependent upon my performance is totally dependent upon Him performing for me. Or another way of saying it what God starts, He always finishes. Being confident of this very thing, He which begun the good work in you, well, if He begun it, He's going to finish it. What God starts, God completes. He doesn't leave the job. Now listen to me. You've got to hear this. Are you listening? Say yes if you're listening. <clears throat> if I assume the responsibility, if I take the initiative for my salvation, then I must assume the responsibility for it. But if he takes the initiative, then he has to assume the responsibility for it. Key thought. If my salvation depends upon me taking the initiative, I heard, I believed, I repented, I... No. He that begun the good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If I take the initiative, I must assume responsibility for maintaining it for the outcome. But if he did, it's his responsibility. Now, go back to the first phrase of the verse. Now, we're ready to look at it. Being confident... Of this very thing. The word confidence there is really important. Confident. We can have confidence in our faith, in our salvation. And so someone says to me, Are you saved, Brother Bill? Yes, I am. I want to say it humbly, not arrogantly, arrogantly, not braggingly, not, Oh, I'm saved. No, 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 no. Don't do that. It's like this, are you saved, Brother Bill? Yes, I am, by the grace of God. Thankfully, I am confident. But aren't you boasting about yourself when you say you're confident that you're saved? Not one bit. If I were trusting in myself, I would be boasting. But my confidence is in him. My confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday Today and forever If my salvation Here's why a lot of people Maybe a lot of you Don't really genuinely have True confidence and assurance of your salvation So hear me You're still thinking that you have some part in it You don't look at it as Here I am a beggar with empty hands I have zero spiritual assets I'm looking to the king to fill my hands And to give me eternal life No you're thinking, I've got to do something to please God. I've got to live up to this standard. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, and back to the I. No, no, no. We're depending upon Him. If salvation, listen to me, if salvation depends upon anything I do, I will never have security in my life. I'll never know when I've worked enough, done enough, lived enough. But if my salvation is totally in his hands, boy, I can be confident. Not only can I be confident, I can have joy. Do you have joy in your salvation? Huh? Boy, some of you had it really well. (laughs) I think you read that verse that God preserveth the righteous, and you thought he said pickled. And you come to church, and we couldn't take a can opener and get a grand out of you. You look like you're bearing the troubles of the whole world. You know what? I, I kind of went through a little spell like that. My wife and I, we got into a couple things and kind of got ourselves overwhelmed the last week or two. And <clears throat> I said to her, Norma, I don't know why, but I just feel sad. And I was kind of moping around. And she was too. We were, we were bad for each other. And then it suddenly occurred to me. I said, "You know what, boy? I've got. I'm I'm looking in the wrong direction. I need to practice what I preach. Because my joy is not based on anything here or here, horizontally. My joy has got to be to get refocused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of my joy. He is the source of my confidence." It's all about Him, folks. It's all about Him. I think of the little grandbabies that we've had in our family. And they get up to about 12 months or so and they start getting ready to walk. And they're falling and, you know, all of that. And what do you do? You take their little hand in your hand and you hold their, you hold their hand tightly enough it will bear their weight. And they trip and they fall and they stumble. It doesn't matter. Sometimes they're dangling in the air. You got them by that arm hoping it doesn't break off, you know. But you know what? They're not going to fall. They're not going to fall. You took the initiative. You're the one in control. And I think about my heavenly father. And I'm going to stumble, but he's not going to let me fall and get all banged up. He's He's holding on to me more than I can hold on to him. And when I think about that, I want to read that verse over in Hebrews. that says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? didn't say if we don't believe it or abandon it. It said if we even neglect it. Am I talking to a Baptist temple member that you've been neglecting your salvation? You're not doing the disciplines of reading your Bible and praying and you're not coming to church faithfully and you wonder why you don't have no victory and you wonder why you have no joy and you have no confidence. Here's the secret. Being confident in one thing, that he, start, he that started the work in me will finish it and perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I go to the cemeteries a lot. And I found a headstone up here at Florence uh, at the Mount Hope Cemetery. And the other day, I remembered it, and I went back out there and took my camera, and Jeremy helped me find the grave. This is a plot. This was a plot for a family. And uh, you'll see the entire, all those headstones, it's the same family involved here. It's in the oldest parts, one of the oldest graves there. It was there two years after they opened the cemetery in 1880. The grave that I'm talking about, the tombstone, is the big one there, the, uh, the center one. Third from either direction It's the tombstone Of a young woman named Sally Williamson Sally was 23 years old when she died And she died interestingly 132 years ago yesterday May the 3rd, 1882 Look to the left of Sally's grave Sally's is the one with the bricks all the way around it To the left, the next grave is her sister her sister was also younger than, than uh, her, and the sister died six months later. So there must have been a typhoid or smallpox epidemic coming through Florence, and in those days, that was a killer. Two young sisters gone within six weeks of each other when you compare the dates. But what I'm interested in is the inscription And I got a close-up shot of it. It's hard for you to read, but it has, to me, Christianity in a nutshell. There you see it in the memory of Sally, a beloved wife of David Williamson, and the daughter of Mr. Beck and his wife of Florence, South Carolina, who died in May 1882. Now, below it there is the real inscription I've never read an epitaph that good. And here I printed it for you. God's first gift is life. His best gift is Christ. His last gift is heaven. Then, they wrote, then, then... She so used the first life that through the best, Christ, she secured the last. Is that not about as clear a statement of the Christian faith as you'll find anywhere on the planet? She used the first, her life, that through the best, Christ, she secured the last. Not a word about Sally's good deeds. About Jesus, who gives us salvation. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Thank you for.